Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to Glad Tidings, the Athletics Everton Football Club podcast. It's me, Greg O'Keefe. I'm joined by a jubilant and victorious Paddy Boyland, and we've got a win to talk about. <laughs> we we might have sounded a little a touch pessimistic in the build-up. Who can blame us? Before we get going, uh, I'm going to warn Paddy now because obviously we like to see each other on these podcasts. We do it via Zoom. At some point, I'm going to be drinking this. God, what even is that? So I'm just, um, for the benefit of the camera, I'm just holding up the most vile-looking green smoothie you'll ever see, and we'll see how that goes down. It's a new concoction I've created. <laughs> it, could, it, could go any, it could go either way, this. It could go either way. Um, right. On some more press and matters, Pad, did you enjoy the game on Sunday? I know we were both watching, obviously. I, I did the piece, but you were watching with your dad and co. What do you think of it? First of all, I'm really glad you described me as triumphant and jubilant. I don't think anybody's ever... Describe me in such a way, so I am. I am. Arms held aloft as you walked into the kitchen to start the pot. <laughs> <laughs> Still arms aloft now. No, I'm. I'm good. I'm good. It was. It was obviously a, a much needed win, a win that keeps Everton right in the hunt. I'd suggest for for Europe. Yeah. If they'd lost, I think that that would have been them cut adrift from from West Ham, yeah. in particular. And the fact that they've won means that now, certainly. Provided they get through the the Aston Villa game unscathed, they they can have a real tilt. Uh, probably the final Europa League place, if not more. So so great to see Everton win, but great to see Everton beat a David Moyes West Ham side in particular. I think that always feels a little bit sweeter as well, doesn't it? It does. It does. Um, <laughs> there's a very small part of me, a stress, a very small part of me that I almost felt sorry for David Moyes because you could just imagine that he it would have just felt like sod's law for him. You know, his team, the form team, you know, really flying going into the game. And then he gets old school moised in a way by a team that doesn't really want the ball. It's going to dig deep, defend well and uh, play kind of, actually, I don't like the phrase parasitic football in the old <laughs> Mourinho way, but certainly the opposite of, of having the ball, uh, which is what you might expect really when you when you go from an, a moise era to all of a sudden having one of the best manager, club managers in in history, but that's why I think Ancelotti is one of the best, really, because he knows how to cut the cloth accordingly. And uh, it was dead interesting afterwards, wasn't it, Pad? Did you see? He, he's alluded to it before, but he, he just said up straight, we are not a possession team. Yeah. We're not. <laughs> it couldn't have been clearer. You know, he said, like it or lump it, essentially. And he said, the correlation between possession and, uh, and goals slash winning isn't there. It's not in this sport. It's maybe for other sports. And... Uh, he seems to be saying what you and I have said often on this podcast that while we're a work in progress recruitment-wise, he's going to pick the team and, and the way of playing that he thinks will win. I feel like we've said that on the podcast about 10 times. I feel as though I've written about 15 match pieces this season along those lines. So, so I mean, yeah, I entirely agree with, with what Ancelotti is saying there. And it does help, obviously, explain the difference between the, the form away from home and at home. That's now 11 wins on the road. 11 out of 17 heading into the game against Aston Villa on Thursday. And I think that at the moment, 
that's only one short of Everton's best record away from home in a league season, which is 12 in the 84-85 season and another one in the 69-70, both winning seasons. 84-85, not much happened then, did it really? (laughs) No, no. And um, instead of Graham Sharp and Andy Gray up front, they've got Dominic Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison. And instead of Neville Southall, you've got... Jordan Pickford. So this is this is a different era, Everton. But they they got the win and they they continue to be effective in that more pragmatic style on the road. The question is, what comes at home? How do they get over the barrier at home? And that's been the story of the season, I guess. It's it's something that we're still to resolve at this late stage. But it'll be the challenge for next year, too. Absolutely, is the the challenge, isn't it, to resolve that? And uh, part of me thinks that when when Richardson, sorry, when Rodriguez isn't fit. I just wouldn't even bother trying to play football, trying to dominate the ball at home or away. Uh, I just wonder why you just play to your strengths anywhere, especially when the fans aren't there and you don't feel any particular pressure to to do it. There's going to come a point where you're going to have to be more progressive and hopefully he's going to evolve the, evolve the team to have better players that, that you are more comfortable with the ball. This is the interesting thing about Ancelotti though, isn't it? Because we, we've spoken a lot about identity or a lack of identity in certain contexts. But if you're going to beat them by that stick, you also have to acknowledge that there are some benefits too. And those benefits are that he'll look at a side like West Ham and he'll be able to, in, on occasion at least, find ways to deal with their threat. Now, if Everton had opened up and really gone at West Ham, my feeling would be that they would have played right into Moise's strengths and the strengths of this this West Ham side. You, you think about West when 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 West Ham are at their best and it's when you've got the direct running of Lingard, Bowen, Antonio on the counter-attack. So Everton were never going to open up. And Chelsea's pragmatic. He knows that that's not really an option against West Ham. They have similar problems to Everton, by the way, insofar as the more of the ball they have, the less effective they tend to be. The onus was on them at home. So all Everton did was, was get that goal. I thought they played pretty well first half, all things considered. And then as we've seen... Step back on, on the lead. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. It doesn't. But on on this occasion, it did. And I thought Ancelotti got it just about spot on in in the approach. Just about spot on. Um, knew how to negate West Ham's weaknesses in the main. And knew as well. I thought it was quite interesting. He spoke after the game, and Calvert Lewin as well spoke after the game about that the idea of getting in behind Dawson and Diop, moving them around. Kind of very good aerial, aerially dominant defenders, but players that aren't blessed with pace. Calvert Lewin and Richarlison had a clear advantage on them, as we as we saw for the goals. So it was a game plan that worked. It was a game plan that helped them to three points. And like I say, that that's what you get with Ancelotti. You get somebody that is going to be able to forge that kind of pragmatic blueprint when when you need it more often than not. Absolutely, and I think if we were to win our remaining four games in that manner, I don't, and it qualified, it got us into Europe. I don't think anyone would be uh, complaining too much. In the long term, you've got to see some evolution. I think to really compete for honours or to get into the top four. Saying that, Leicester won the league not so long ago, playing very similar style of football. Often would have 40 percent possession. It's just about you know being honest and upfront and what suits you best. Playing to the strengths of the, the, the players at your disposal at the moment. The, exactly. the qualities are, it's like the battling of a of a Ben Godfrey. Uh, it's the aerial prowess of a Calvert-Lewin, the delivery of Luca Dean. At times, when he's fit, it's the quality on the ball, the creativity of Hammers. But like you say, when he's not there, 
the other elements need to come to the foreground. I think that's why Ancelotti's right. They are battling side more than a, a, a dominant front foot possession first side at this moment in time. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. We asked you earlier for some questions because uh, we like to answer your questions and get your shouts for what we should talk about. And uh, you responded really well. So thank you very much. If we didn't get across to your question, today in this podcast please do persevere in future and we we will next time but we'll start with Patrick Ridge who asked a topical one actually is Davies the most important midfielder for the run-in Pad I'll let you start with this one because Tom Davies we've both written a lot about he's a player that you've long championed really and you know we wrote about him earlier in the season about his uh, improvements they were all there to see again on Sunday Everton were a better team for him in it they absolutely were and I, th- I think we, we spoke about this on last week's pod. The balance didn't seem right in central areas when it was Alan and Gomez as a partnership. It just didn't give Everton enough solidity. We said that Alan likes to push forward, win back possession, and that can often leave loads of space in between the lines. When you've got somebody like Gomez there, Gomez is not maybe positionally intelligent or mobile enough to cover that ground. Davis has been some of those things this season, he's grown into that number six role. What was really clear to me from the West Ham game was the extent to which Davis's presence in that midfield freed Alan up to do even more. And I think there's a, there's a bit, I'm going to write about this later this week because I think it's an interesting topic, but there's this, this thing with Alan where he's, he is a destroyer in, in some sense of the word. He does win back possession, but he is also more than just being a number six. I mean, some of the runs forward, there was, there were probably two or three runs forward. As, as Greg gets ready to drink his pungent green combination, there, there, uh, yeah, there were some, um, some great runs forward from Alan where he took two, three opposition players out of yeah. the game at the London Stadium. Yeah. There was also, I don't know if you remember it, there was a, a fantastic ball clipped with the outside of his foot to Richarlison over the top of the, the defence in there. Yes, I do actually. It was a lovely pass though, wasn't it? In the first yeah. half too. He's, he's a really good footballer and I think sometimes we we forget this when he plays in that kind of destroyer, that number six role. So Davis being there allowed him to play that position. I feel Ducore does as well. I feel if you've got Ducore alongside Alan, you've obviously got more legs, you've got more energy, you've got a problem solver alongside him. So he's intelligent enough to sit deep. So I think it, it doesn't matter if it's Davis or Ducore, but what's quite clear to me is it needs one of them to get the most out of Alan in these final games. I don't, I don't, I don't care which. I think it'd be hard for Davis and harsh for him to lose his place after that match. But equally, Ducore's 
arguably being Everton's most important midfielder this year as well. So I don't know, I don't know if Davis is the most important, but he's, he's certainly a player of his ilk is going to be key to getting the most out of Alan. I feel what, what, what do you, what do you think? No, I totally agree. Um, probably the, the most important might be overstating it a little bit, but the fact that he was able to step in to obviously Decore wasn't risked on Sunday despite being back in training and to all intents purposes fit, maybe not match fit. I thought Tom's performance was massive. I'm all here now for why he's an important member of the squad going forward. In another world, he might have left last summer. He might have gone on loan in January. But Carlo stood firm and said he wanted him around and we can see why now. So moving on, uh, Terry McAllister asks, considering the current financial climate, will Everton be able to bring in three to four first teamers again this summer i presume that given the climate he's talking about obviously the impact of covid on all clubs everton included the commitment to spending on the stadium uh will everton be able to bring in three to four first teamers again this summer uh i mean i'll, I'll sort of start i think they need to it would be my opinion they need three or four players that, you know, we again, we said so often, we need the right back, a, a right winger or a, a wide player who can probably play off either side and scores goals. I would suggest they need another central midfielder, although without sounding like a broken record, I suppose Gabamon is still there, but maybe it's not someone who replaces Gabamon as opposed to bring a lot more pace and attacking quality into the central midfield. We don't score goals from central midfield. Uh, we don't assist from central midfield. I think Gomez's place in the squad, for me, has to be in question. And, uh, you know, the suggestions that he's looking at another centre-back, we'll see what happens in that regard. Will we be able to do it? I think it's all about Padden. And I was interested to get your take. I think it's all about how we do it. We're not going to go out and spend 30 million times for, I don't think that's going to happen. But look at the way they were creative around doing deals last summer. Look at the way they did the deal for James Rodriguez. Um, there's ways and means of going about it. And, and you know, Brands and Mishiri. We'll do everything, I think, to get Carlo the players that, that he wants. Yeah, well, I think, interestingly, Ancelotti has spoken quite a lot about this already in the last few weeks. And he, he's gone on record as saying two to three first team is needed this summer if Everton are to kick on, in his opinion. I'm kind of the, of the same opinion as you. I think, particularly if they were to get Europe, that would need to rise to three or four. Because there are, we're not even talking about fringe players here or just getting squad depth in place. I think you look at maybe certainly the right side, the whole right side of the team, regardless of how well Seamus Coleman's done in recent months. That's in need of a, a big upgrade and starting quality upgrade, you'd say, particularly on the right side of midfield. But you've listed other positions there. And the other one I'd like to highlight, you've got a situation with Moyes Keane this summer where Ancelotti's already said he will not stand in Keane's way if he does want to leave Goodison and the right offer comes in. Cenk Tosin, who almost certainly would have left, either on another loan deal or on a permanent yeah. deal, he's now injured and probably out until October time. So, I mean, the end result's the same, whether he leaves or not. He's not going to be able to contribute to the Everton squad. That leaves Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison as your two strikers. That's not enough. That's not enough for a Premier League season, never mind. Europa League or European Conference League, whatever it's called, the, the new Farmers League there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what an enticing prospect that is. So I suppose the question's asking, is that feasible? What I would say is I think they'll be confident that they'll get the two to three in. And I think the rest will very much depend on what happens in terms of outgoings. Let's say, for example, Moise Keane were to leave for 30, 40 million pounds. 
that's 30 to 40 million that in theory could be at least in part reinvested on an additional player. And as well as saying that they need two to three, Ancelotti's already pinpointed last year as the blueprint and the, the kind of sums spent on players there. So we're not talking about 50, 60 million in theory. It's 20 here, 20 there, a bargain deal if they can afford it, potentially even more rising to 20, 25, 30. That, that's the blueprint. I, I, I don't think that the funds are there in the financial climate and given Everton's own issues financially over the last five years or so. I don't think the funds are there to go mad but unless they were to sell really, really big. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's going to, it's going to be really, really interesting, but I think we'll see additions and I think we'll see additions in key key parts of the pitch and hopefully they're as successful as maybe a Ducore or a Ben Godfrey and can, can help Everton push forward. If they can be half as successful as those two, then I think we'll be, in a, we'll, we'll be looking good. So other than Bernard and Keane, do we expect to see any other high-profile departures this summer? That's Robbie Taylor. We'll get to Wayne's question in a second. So, I mean, Paddy mentioned Moise Keane and his situation. Bernard, I think we expect him to move on, don't we, Pad? I, th- I think so. He obviously came very close to doing so in January. Certainly, if you look at Everton's financial model at the moment, I think where it needs the biggest improvement is in terms of making sure that the guys that are on the periphery and are not performing for whatever reason, but are on high contracts, big contracts and big salaries, are kind of cut adrift if at all possible. Bernard obviously fits into that category quite neatly because he was a free agent. He came in on on a good salary, a very good salary even. And uh, he's not first choice by any stretch of the imagination. So I think losing players like him will be a priority. I guess to answer the the rest of the question, what does a high-profile departure mean? Would a departure of Moise Keane be high-profile? Well, yes, probably it would. And we've already said that that's probably one way that Everton can look to to bring in funds. Does high profile in terms of the rest of the squad mean like, let's say, for example, a shock departure of Luca Dean or, or Calvert-Lewin? Well, we've had no indication at this stage to suggest that either those two players would be likely to leave. They're both on big deals uh, and new, new contracts, relatively new contracts. And then it's the rest of the squad. You look at the rest of the squad, I think they, they're going to lose Theo Walcott. They're going to lose... Yannick Balassi. The key thing there is that while you're not getting transfer fees for those guys that come to the end of the contract, you are recouping sizable wages. And I think this summer, the challenge for all teams is going to be losing players that they no longer want, finding buyers or permanent homes for players they no longer want. Because I think that market was massively saturated last summer. It was just there's no wiggle room. Everton weren't able to do the business in terms of outgoings that they would have wanted. And they've already pointed to that. They pointed to that in the general meeting back in January. They said how difficult it was and how effectively, although the Premier League held relatively firm with spending power, the likes of Serie A, Bundesliga and La Liga, three big buying markets for, for Premier League talent, just completely fell off a cliff. And I've seen no evidence to suggest but that's likely to change this summer. So I, th- I think that, I don't know what you think, but for me, that's going to be the big issue. Even if Everton wanted to lose kind of high profile fringe players, are they going to be able to find locations for them? 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's I, I, absolutely, and that's the challenge facing Marcel Brands, and it seems perpetually to be the challenge facing Marcel Brands in a football manager sense. You know, you you move one off the books, you move bring one in, and it's, it all sounds very straightforward, but obviously, it's not the case. It's easier said than done. Uh, the challenge, of course, might be as something I wrote about last week is keeping hold of some of your players um, if you don't get Europe. So there's uh, you know players like Richarlison, uh, Luca Dean's on a nice big uh, new contract. However, that doesn't mean if an offer to come in, he might not fancy it. If a Champions League club were pushing, it just protects everything. Which Allison's going to want to play Champions League football at some yeah. point on the Calvert-Lewin will want to. I mean, that's not being alarmist. That's just how players yeah. are. They're everybody, you would hope, everybody is ambitious. Exactly. And don't forget, it was only last summer Richarlison was talking about giving Everton one, one more season in terms of uh, the progress or giving Ancelotti one more season. Now, I, I can hear a lot of you now saying, well, he hasn't exactly pulled up trees this season. Um, and they're right, he, by the way. <laughs> and they're absolutely right. But on that point, we'll get on to Wayne Ellis's question, the last one for this pod uh, of, of your Q&A. What do you make of the relationship between Dom and Richarlison on the field? Now, you and I were chatting after the game on Sunday, Pad. I ended up writing about it and, and we were chatting about it. You know, you, you were talking about how effective they were as a duo and they really were, weren't they? It was one of Richardson's better games, albeit without scoring. Uh, and there was still the odds running into a, a dead end. But that running was there. The attitude was back on track and he did exactly, seemed to me to do exactly what was asked of him and, and Shotty alluded to that afterwards, didn't he? Yeah, I, I think... This was the best Richarlison that we've seen for, for a good while. And certainly it wasn't perfect. I mean, it was much better in the first half, by the way, than after the break, where Everton retreated and didn't really give them much possession. But what we saw and what I really liked was the way he was alleviating pressure by getting Everton up the pitch. We know he is capable of doing that. He's a strong runner with the ball. He's not lightning quick, but he is... I'd say, on the quicker end of the spectrum when it comes to Premier League strikers. We know full well when he's got the bit between his teeth and he's aggressive in, in his in his approach, he can really ruffle feathers and he can really provide a, a real headache for opposition teams. Saw that quite a lot in the first half. Thought there was some great link-up play where Calvert-Lewin would go short and would flick it on. And one example was a shot from Richarlison where he turned D up and Fabianski had to make a save. And I also thought it was the best we've seen from Calvert-Lewin for a good while too. The issue for me is that I still think when it's instinctive and when it's, let's say, for example, Calvert-Lewin flicking onto Richarlison, they look really good in tandem. Maybe where they are lacking a little bit still is in that final killer pass when they've got more time on their hands. So there were a few times in the second half when one of them broke into space looked up and the other was making a run off the shoulder and they didn't make the pass. I don't think that's because, as some people were weirdly suggesting on Twitter, they don't want to pass to each other. That, I just don't think that's the case at all. What I would say is I just think it's maybe because they either believe that they don't have the ability to make that pass or that they're just so focused on getting their head down and making ground that they perhaps don't make the best decision. Calvert-Lewin, some of Calvert-Lewin's passing though was fantastic. I mean, there was a ball through to Coleman for a shot that was, was ultimately blocked. I thought that was a fantastic pass. And a, another one where he rounded the keeper and squared for Josh King to head against the post. We've not seen loads of that from Calvert-Lewin. It's certainly an element of his game that I feel if he's to become a top, top, top striker, he's going to need to develop. But we are seeing signs that he's still only 23, that he's able to do that. And he's... Uh, potentially got that in his locker. 
I also thought the finish, by the way, I'm not always 100% confident when he goes through on goal. And he's got a bit more time on his hands and where he's got to make a, a decision, pick a corner. I think he's better at the instinctive stuff around the six-yard box. But on this occasion, he was just razor sharp and really, really clinical. So uh, Calvert-Lewin growing, Calvert-Lewin showing signs that he can become even more than the top quality striker he is now. And Richarlison picked up again as well. If Everton are to get into Europe, they need those two guys to link in tandem like they were at the, the London Stadium. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. Um, that was a really important display from both of them and, and it showed what they can offer. So let- let's hope that Richarlison can sort of keep that consistency in the run-in. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Thanks very much for your questions again. Really appreciate it. We've also got another massive game on Thursday. They just keep coming thick and fast, don't they? You wait all that time for a bus or a game against Villa and then two come along at once. We only played them the other week. Less said about that, the better. If you're feeling particularly upbeat and want to be deflated, listen to our podcast where we we picked over the bones of the Villa defeat. Let's hope for an entirely different outcome at Villa Park on Thursday. Well, it needs to be, obviously. And he made that point, didn't he, straight away after the game. Ancelotti, there was no sort of, no particular kind of resting on laurels. I felt he'd made the players aware how important the game at West Ham was. Maybe he'd lit a little bit of fire underneath them. And he made the point that it needs to be the same in the Midlands, big game. It goes without saying, but it's, it's a big game, isn't it? Yeah, they all are at this stage. I think three points gained or three points dropped could ultimately be the difference between qualifying for Europe or not. And Ancelotti's made that abundantly clear to the players now. They're left in no uncertain terms as to what he expects from them in the final four games. As it is now, an opportunity, a quick, very quick opportunity to right the wrongs of the the game at Goodison, where I just thought Villa were comfortably the best side and thoroughly deserved their win. What you have to say is that if it follows the pattern of the season so far, this match at Villa Park suits Everton more because it allows them to do what they did against West Ham and look to exploit gaps when the opposition come on to them. As we've said, 
repeatedly, that's when Everton are at their best. So I wouldn't expect a massive deviation from Carlo, particularly with the success of the the three at the three at the back. Golly Watkins is suspended, which obviously helps. Uh, Jack Grealish is close to coming back. He might feature in some form on Thursday, which is, which is a blow. But isn't the, isn't the schedule just ludicrous? I mean, Everton have got a situation where they're playing three three games in seven days, two of which are away from home and involve quite a fair amount of travelling. It's a tough ask for any team. Manchester United, I think, have got four in nine or four in eight. And that's just the symptom for me of the way the season spiralled a little bit out of control, how COVID has impacted and... When sides are playing catch-up like Everton and Manchester United are, they're in a worse position because inevitably they've got fewer points on the board and are having to make ground. And they make ground in midweek, sandwiched in between two other games. Not entirely fair, but that's that's what it is. It's what it is. And I think what what we'll need is, because there's a game Thursday, there's a game Sunday evening, what we'll need is somebody like a Ducore to come back and provide extra legs and extra energy There'll need to be a few tweaks here or there. Maybe you see, for example, Yerry Mina. He obviously picked up a knock. Maybe you see him make way for a Mason Holgate. Maybe you see, I don't know, a, a Josh King get more game time, more minutes at some point. And they're going to need to, where possible, use the squad and try and navigate a way through. So the success or failure of these next two games for me will be based on who they have fit, who's able to play, and how the players that do come into the picture a little bit more fair. We need to see more from Josh King. We need to see more from people like Alex Awobi. Can they provide that in these final final games of the season? Let's see. Indeed, let's see. Well, I, I did mention at the top, but there's been loads of good stuff, uh, if we don't say so ourselves, on the site recently. Last Friday was an absolutely cracking piece Paddy did with Mark Carey. Should mention it. If you haven't read it yet, Honestly, it, it, it answers a question I think every Evertonian has asked in frustration at some point this season. And it, the headline says it all. Why are Everton so slow? Let us explain. And I'd say Paddy and, and Mark do a very good job of doing so. Um, it got some really interesting traction and feedback, that piece, didn't it? It was like being spoken about in the game by people as well. It's um, it, was, it, it was illuminating, wasn't it, Pad? Yeah, and no, I know that the... I know the the results because we were able to, with the help of of a data provider used by a lot of the Premier League clubs, we were able to chart the top speeds um, recorded by every single performer in the Everton squad this season. And Luca Dean came out on top, and that was obviously a, a a big surprise to some. I think if you asked most Everton fans or people that follow Everton week in week out. They'd almost certainly have gone for a, a Ben Godfrey, a Dominic Calvert-Lewin. And I would have said the same, to be honest. But what I would say, the, the big caveat is that, I mean, you, you can cover, but th- what this stat doesn't tell you is how much distance is covered when making that sprint. So it might only be a five-yard dash. That's just absolutely rapid. And that's probably the case with somebody like Luca Dean. We all know that Godfrey and Calvert-Lewin are, are quick. We all know that Richarlison's quick by Premier League standards. But the other thing to point out, and I, I did want to make this abundantly clear when writing, was that actually the stylistic stuff at work here, Everton press far less now under Ancelotti than they did when Marco Silva was in charge. They don't score. I know they did at the weekend, but they don't score many direct attacks, i.e. counter-attack moves. 
Um, they tend to be few and far between for this Everton side. So it does show that they, on top of maybe needing a bit of an injection of pace on the wings and in certain forward areas, they probably need as well to to look at if they were to get those players in, adapting the style too, to something a bit more aggressive and energetic. Um, but enjoyed it, enjoyed it. And like you say, lots of stuff on the site. Uh, really good read from you with Dale Jennings, the uh, former Tramere and Bayern Munich player. Um, that's one to definitely check out. And yeah, I'm going to, I finished writing something on Ellis Sims, the striker on loan at Blackpool today. We're going to do something on Alan, as I promised earlier, later in the week. So keeping that Everton page going, keeping other athletic pages going. And, and obviously the, the focus very soon is on Aston Villa and, and Sheffield United. If Everton come out with four to six points from those games, then they're still in the mix, aren't they? So that, that, that's got to be the aim. Absolutely. Well, Paddy's off to analyse Alan. I'm off to drink that green gloop that we mentioned earlier. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, don't forget, listeners to the pod can get a 40% discount to read all our Everton coverage on The Athletic. You only need to go to theathletic.com forward slash Everton pod to subscribe for £3.99 a month. That's theathletic.com forward slash Everton pod. Thank you very much for listening. And here's to another, hopefully, three points on Thursday. The Athletic.